Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Well, hello. Did you see that there was something exciting in the inbox? No. So, remember last week we were talking about your uh, blowing in the wind viral video? Yeah. And I was saying what would be great is if somebody could remix this. Yeah. Well, we received an email from John Walton, whose name may ring a bell because he was one of the uh, entrants in the ill-fated Reasons to be Cheerful song contest. But yes. he's still with us and he says, Hi, Ed and Jeff. Please find attached a little video mix of Ed's Blowing in the Wind cover. Also, no hard feelings over the theme tune Fiasco. Well, that's, that's lucky. I think he's right in describing it as a fiasco. Yeah. So what's so what? Go ahead, that's enough about you. What about me? What? Well, should I should I send it to you? Yeah. Then? Hang yeah, on a second. Yeah. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. So here I am. What are your initial thoughts? Because really, uh, th- this is somebody taking your baby and embellishing it. It definitely sounds better embellished. I know when Phil Spector added strings and choirs to Let It Be, Paul McCartney wasn't happy about it. I wondered uh, w- whether you thought the simplicity of your original version had a certain je ne sais quoi. Well, can I let you into a little secret? Hmm. Which is, I am learning the guitar. Oh! Well, when I say I'm learning the guitar, I'm learning to play Blowing in the Wind. And how is that going for you? I mean, I tell you, it's a lot better than it was. So how, how many chords are there? There are only three chords. Uh, my son learns the guitar, and I've found a way of piggybacking on his lessons. So what, you're like turning up for the last 15 minutes of a guitar lesson? and More or less, yeah. And, and what are you finding difficult? Is it your fingers hurt when you're pressing the strings down? Is it the, the strumming and playing at the same time? It's a lot like patting your head and rubbing your tummy at the same time, which I can't imagine is... I'm a, a natural, basically. Well, I think we can all tell that from the original video. No, I don't think we can from the original. <laughs> so when can we expect the, uh, the revised, rehearsed, improved, supercharged version? Uh... I don't think it's a sort of first term of a Labour government project. I think it's second term. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's somewhere off. Uh, don't hold your breath. Okay. I think embellishment might be the answer. Okay, well, I think John has done a fantastic job of uh, of providing that. Yeah, well, there you go. Now, I had a question because we discussed sandwich toasters last week, didn't we? Yes. And I think I said I'd bought a sandwich. We're, I, I, just like complicated. I, we already had a sandwich toaster, but I bought one for my office. And I said I look forward to seeing news footage of the entire staff of Parliament Gathering on the pavements outside when the fire alarms start going yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, that is going to happen with you. Okay, no, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is the question I would ask. I'm not going to get distracted here. So George Foreman was a boxer, right? Yes. But he now, like, he's got grills, yeah? The George Foreman grill, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Paul Newman was an actor, and he made salad dressing. Okay, let, let's not go to the salad dressing. How ba- Barry you- Norman. 
film critic, Pickled Onions. Really? Very good Pickled Onions as well. And, okay, so how did George Foreman become, like, associated with, like, a successful sandwich toasting business? And I wondered whether there might be potential for me. Do you know what I mean? It's not like automatically, oh, he's a boxer, so he's going to go into sandwich toasting. No, it's, it's what they call a pivot, isn't it? Well, it's quite a big pivot. Yeah. Is it because he's, like, you know, butch and, like, a grill guy? So in other words, does it have to be? Oh yeah, so you could it, you could capitalize on that. That that's uh, that's that's no, true. No, no, I'm not saying that about myself. <laughs> does it have to be sort of occupation relevant? Is what I'm asking. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? I here? do, but no, I don't think so. Barry Norman would have been making popcorn if that was the case. Nobody's taking a jar of pickled onions to the cinema. I hope. So like we could be like Ed's coffee. You know, Ed's coffee shops. Yes. Come into Ed's. Are you suggesting a sandwich toaster or something different? No, I think the sandwich toasting market may have been cornered by George Foreman and others. Well, you no, no, say but I'm just quite struck by it. Do you know what I mean? It's quite striking, isn't it? Didn't George Foreman have about six kids, including a daughter, and he called them all George Foreman? And he called his grill the George Foreman Grill. He also competed in season eight of The Masked Singer as Venus Flytrap. George Foreman did? Yeah, apparently. So there is a route to, to Wikipedia. There is a route to the mass singer for you. You've just when Foreman to- came back from retirement, he argued his success was due to healthy eating. He was approached by Sultan Inc., which was looking for a spokesperson for its fat-reducing grill. As of 2009, this is obviously slightly out of date in Wikipedia, the George Foreman grill has sold over 100 million units. Do you feel slightly sad knowing George Foreman just put his name to something rather than he was there in his garage inventing the perfect grilling machine? Not really, no. But anyway, I think there's something interesting here. What's the most unlikely thing? Maybe I won't be a line of what could I? What could I be? What could I? Oh well, if we're going unlikely, I mean, yeah, uh, unlikely fashion items. I think. Yes, the Ed fashion items. I think that's pretty unlikely. Yeah, the Miliband show at the, the Paris Fashion Week is. Yeah, I think it's sort of not. That's like quite. But I also think. I mean, the, there is a gentleman of a certain age who might appreciate a comfortable sweatshirt. <laughs> which meets the Miliband exact because yeah, you know, as I've said to you before, we no longer have CNA in this country, and I, th- I don't think this is going in a good direction. This conversation, <laughs> but I think as a brand, maybe you would occupy a similar space. I don't. I don't know enough about fashion to know how insulting that is. I've got a funny little lurking suspicion that it's not the highest compliment. Come on, the Marks and Spencer's Blue Harbour range needs a competitor, and I think it's time for I, you to I step can't, up. I can't be sure. I feel like it's gone. I feel the insult has gone over my head, <laughs> which is maybe a sort of good thing. It's because you're not a fashionista, knowing about the, all these hip labels like CNA and Blue Harbour from Saint Michael. Exactly. Well, I look forward to the Ed Miliband sandwich toaster. Yeah. You know you can get those, um, they're almost like stencils you can use on toast to have the face of Jesus on your toast. I think a sandwich toaster with the face of Miliband built into it. So every toasty is indented with your face, no? I think that's a little bit sort of Kim Jong-un, really. You could call it Eat My Face. No, no. I mean, no bad ideas in spitballing, but I just think, should we talk about what we're talking about this We week? should, yes. So this week we are talking about the revival of the bookshop. I love a bookshop. I love the smell of a bookshop. Yep. If I've got 20 minutes to kill before a meeting or if it's raining, just popping into a bookshop, it's a very comforting thing for me. Definitely. Now, independent bookshops are at a 20-year high, and the publishing industry is doing really well, against what people might have been predicting 10 or 15 years ago. Um, We're going to be speaking to Sean Bailey, who works as a news editor at the magazine The Bookseller, about some of the trends in the industry. 
We are then heading north to chat to co-founders Sarah Scales and Rosie May, who have recently started a bookshop in Sheffield called Juno Books. And then finally, we're talking to Amy Fallone, who is a children's publisher who set up her own inclusive bookshop in Brixton. And this is just uplifting. It is. We love an independent bookshop. We love bookshops. And it's just fun and cheerful. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Well, Ed... I went to Cardiff yesterday. Right. Uh, I was there for the Community Housing Cymru's annual conference, giving a little talk about this podcast and how it's turned me into an optimist. Uh, But my my reason to be cheerful is that I left home. I got to the bus stop and I realised that I hadn't brought my wallet out with me. I thought, shall I turn back? Will I be late for my train? And then I thought, no, I'm going to go all that way and, and try and just use my phone. And I did, and it was fine. And I just thought, what an age we live in. Did you buy any little snacks along the way? I did, yeah. Do you want to know what I bought? Not that much, but you can tell me if you want. Bought a (laughs) plant-based sandwich from Upper Crust. Right. Yeah, it's always good to try new things, is what I would say about it. Good. Uh, And that was it. And did they love you, the crowd? Uh, I I think it was a bit of an opportunity for people. They'd had a long day, and uh, it was an opportunity to sit and perhaps doze a little. That's good. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, honestly, there's lots I can choose from. Spring is here, which I always find uplifting. The ponds are sort of nudging towards 8 degrees, which is 7.8 last time we looked. That's that's good. But the, my, my top reason to be cheerful is I watched the last episode of The Piano with my family uh, last weekend. And honestly, you know The Piano, I talked about it last week. It, yeah, it was your reason to be cheerful last week, wasn't it? And it's about these amateur pianists who came and played. And they all played, at the four that they picked played at the Festival Hall. And honestly, it was just, like, amazing. But the most amazing thing was hearing Lucy, who's a young blind person, she's 13, and, and a neurodivergent. I mean, just Absolutely. And the people in the audience were crying. She got an absolutely rapturous standing ovation. Lang Lang, you know, one of the most famous pianists in the world, was just couldn't believe her. And honestly, I really think you should watch this. It's just, I think you'll find it incredibly moving. And and I, th- I, I do think there's something very, very interesting about this. I was sort of, I was kind of ruminating on it afterwards. Uh, and I still think we kind of say this, but don't really appreciate it properly as a society which is, and I hope I put this the right way, that I think so many people have hidden talents that may not be apparent and and actually may never appear unless they're cultivated. Do, do you know what I mean? Mm. Can I just ask, when, when you say that, are you alluding to yourself in this guitar playing as well? I didn't want to sort of be too kind of overt about it. Um, maybe that's a talent that will remain hidden my guitar playing but but honestly I highly recommend it You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd To start our conversation I'm delighted to say we're joined by Sean Bailey who is news editor at The Bookseller which is the trade magazine for the publishing industry Sean, thank you so much for joining us Oh, thank you Lovely to be here Can I just start off with the sort of most basic question of all which is you know, when sort of Amazon arrived, ebooks and all that, everybody said it's the end of the bookshop, certainly the independent bookshop, but bookshops generally. And, you know, we're in the good news business. I mean, actually, 
that hasn't happened, has it? I mean, in other words, people are rediscovering bricks and mortar bookshops again. Yes, definitely. I mean, there was a, a report from the Booksellers Association at the beginning of this year that was sort of exactly saying that, saying that we're at a 10 year high for independent bookshops. So if anything, we're doing sort of better than for a long time. I think people were particularly worried that the pandemic and obviously issues with the high street and shopping then could have been the death knell. But they've really come out a lot stronger. I mean, there's been a, a boom in reading and excitement around that. Is it a particular character of bookshop or is it particularly independent bookshops? I know Waterstones has been doing very well, but at a more granular level, what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a bit of both. I mean, as you say, sort of Waterstones has really managed to expand its estate in the last year or so. I think they opened 13 new bookshops last year. So they're obviously doing really well. They took over Blackwells as well. So, you know, whatever your opinions about that, they're definitely in a very healthy state at the moment. But Indies are also doing very well themselves. I mean, lots opened in the last year or so, particularly sort of community-focused bookshops, places like Book Bar in North London that maybe do something a little bit different where you can also have a nice glass of wine as well as enjoying your book. Oh, interesting. (laughs) And do you think there's anything in the idea that the pace of lockdown led to people prioritising reading perhaps in, in a way that they hadn't in recent years, but then the reopening really reinforced how special it is to go into a physical space and talk to people who live and breathe books. Yeah, I think so. And I think it really ties in with how sort of BookTok and TikTok have sort of exploded around this as well. There was a real engagement and love of reading during the pandemic. People didn't maybe have as much to do, so could devote their time to, you know, doing a very noble pursuit of reading and rediscovering things and discovered it was, you know, really fun. They were really enjoying it, particularly young people. Um, And yeah, really engaging online, gushing about how much they love their favourite books. And I think when everything opened up again and you could go, you know, line up in your favourite bookstore, wait to see the beautiful covers with the sprayed edges and things like that, you know, that community sort of became physical as well as online. We need to know about BookTok. Ed and I are, I think, pretty oblivious to BookTok. Well, I I mean, I I probably should know more about BookTok considering my job, but like it's basically everywhere. I mean, every single trend at the moment um, seems to be based off BookTok. I mean, the the real rise of fantasy, romance, romanticy, so the two of them is really down to, to BookTok and what uh, particularly young people are reading and really engaging. And BookTok is just a hashtag on TikTok, yeah, of young yeah. people saying, I love this book, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it's absolutely massive. I think it's one of the biggest communities on TikTok at the moment. There's always been the phrase, it's sort of the nicest place on the internet. So good to go there. So very wholesome. I know this is a really ignorant question, but how high are book sales now compared to, say, a decade ago? And what proportion of them are sold online and which proportion of them are sold in bookshops? Yeah, I don't necessarily have the numbers to hand on that. But I know um, sort of we definitely saw a boom in the pandemic, um, even though we're slightly coming off that now. Where numbers are maybe slightly down on last year, they're still very much above 2019, which was the sort of last normal year. So we can definitely see that books doing really well. I mean, there was a bit of a a slowdown, I think, in the sort of early 2010s and a bit of a worry about ebooks or even the Spotify occasion of, you know, audiobooks and things like that. But quite strong copyright laws have meant that that hasn't really happened. The printed book is definitely performing very strongly at the moment. And I think because publishers are putting a lot of work into making the books look very gorgeous, you know, hardbacks are still remaining quite strong despite being at that higher price point uh, because they're sort of a beautiful physical object you can push into your friend's hands and things like that that they seem to still be doing very well. 
And do you think that explains why? Because we're in a world where you talk about TikTok or online content generally, people think they're getting it for free, even if they are paying for it through advertising or data, whatever. Do you think that explains why people are happy to pay £20, for example, for a hardback book? I think so, because you can read a lot of things online for free, but books haven't really suffered that too much. People still seem very attached to the physical book and particularly still to the hardback, but definitely the work and the designers and yeah tiktok sort of rebranding it as a very desirable thing to have so interesting whenever you see like videos they're really all about the physical product of the book so aside from book talk what are some of the other cheerful things you've been seeing in the industry over the past few months oh good question even just like this is book talk adjacent but (laughs) um the rise in sort of um Books centering on more sort of diverse characters has really been driven by a lot of young people on BookTok. Um, But we're definitely seeing it more in the industry as well, where there's a real focus on, oh, we need to share a variety of stories, not maybe the same stories that we've always heard before. And there's still a long way to go with that, of course. Penguin Random House and the Runnymede Trust, which is a charity, have set up a scheme called Lit in Colour, which is all about improving the number of writers of colour sort of being taught at GCSE and A-level on the curriculum. And I guess also just that the industry seems to just be very healthy at the moment and doing very well. We had Bloomsbury were posting their trading update this morning and they're doing so well. We were all laughing about the Prince Harry memoir at the beginning of the year. I mean, some of the stuff was so mad about the leaks and whatnot, but it's such a good sign for the industry. I mean, where it was the fastest selling nonfiction book in the UK for a January title where it's normally quieter over Christmas, it really shows how healthy the industry is at the moment. And that it, it's in the news. Normally, you know, covering the book industry, my friends don't know about what's going on. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, the Prince Harry memoir, they were all asking me what I thought about various things. So it was quite fun. Now, I've got a piece of, perhaps you'll see it as good news or perhaps you'll see it as bad news, Sean. But we have a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, which is our utopia where Jeff is a benign oh. dictator. And we've decided that we want to appoint you as the Minister for Books. Oh. Yes, the first, first ever Minister for Books. That's a nice title. I, I have to say, I could be a poison chalice. But anyway, <laughs> what would be your first act? Is there anything you'd like to do? It can be as serious or non-serious as you like. Ah, that's a really tricky one. I think because I I definitely had a bit of an obsession with libraries and sitting in libraries as a kid, I think I would make sure that there are libraries in every primary school and that all children have sort of at least some of their own books of their own to read. There's been so much research on how kids often don't have their own books. And I just think I, I loved reading so much as a kid that I would probably do something along those lines. What a good idea. And there is something called Book Trust, isn't there, which sends books to kids? Yeah, exactly. There's so many really good organisations like Book Trust that are really focused on that kind of thing and produce lots of research all the time. There's so many charities that are doing all they can and ensuring that kids have access to books. Because I think there's always like quite an argument about you know the education aspect of it, but it's also the fun element, the joy of reading that I think is really important and particularly with graphic novels and things like that at the moment. It's such a lovely thing to see. I mean, that's a really interesting point about libraries. But presumably, if you want a healthy book industry, you need healthy libraries as well. The two go together. 
Exactly, exactly. Because I think sometimes people forget the different pillars of the book industry. So, you know, libraries are very good for inspiring that love of reading and getting recommendations and then encouraging a book buying public to go into bookshops and keep the industry going. So, you know, where you discover your love of reading, particularly at a young age, normally a library, um, and then that helps you in terms of your uh, love of books and literature as an adult. When you're looking at the book industry, do you count secondhand books within that? Because it's, it's an interesting area, especially in terms of sustainability. Definitely. We at the bookseller don't normally, it's so difficult to track, obviously, secondhand books in terms of sales. So we don't um, have any sort of official figures on that. Um, but it's always quite an interesting aspect, as you say, um, for sustainability. I mean, publishers are doing a lot of work at the moment in terms of avoiding pulping books so much, which is often what happens if they produce too many books at once. The secondhand industry, yeah, I think sometimes it's been perceived as a bit of a threat to the publishing industry because it's not an easy way to sort of make money. But maybe attitudes should change around that a bit more. Well, look, I think definitely Sean gets the job as Minister <laughs> for Books, doesn't she? Yes. And I just want to say that books are very much encouraged in the Jeff Ocker well, look, Sean Bailey, it's good to bring good news about bookshops. We all love bookshops. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, next we go to the cold face of bookselling, to Sheffield, in fact, and Juno Books, which is an independent, intersectional, feminist and queer bookshop. And with me now are the co-founders, Rosie May and Sarah Scales. Hello. Hello. And am I right in thinking that you've shut up shop to, to talk to us? We we have, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty quiet in the morning, so we're not like keeping the hordes from the door right now. But yeah, we've got a delivery to unpack as well. So that was always my least favourite when I worked in a shop, checking off all the things from the delivery. Oh, we really like it. It's yeah, it appeals to the uh, the book nerds in us. It's it's. I thought it would get old, but it genuinely doesn't. Um, sort of feels like Christmas every every morning when you open up the books and see what you're getting back. Yeah, and all the things that you've forgotten that you ordered. <laughs> you're like, this looks amazing. God, we've got an incredible taste this is great so yeah <laughs> so so tell us a bit about the story how did you two meet what's the background why did you decide to set up the bookshop we met um about six years ago we met at a baby sling group um where we learned how to carry our kids in those little you know the little carrier slings which was really lovely and um we stayed friends ever since and probably about well, about two and a half years ago now, in the middle of the the relaxing of the lockdown rules, when we were allowed back into people's gardens and things, we were having um, a lovely time one evening chatting about what we would like life to look like after lockdown and when we were finally allowed back out again. We talked a lot about what we were enjoying reading and so on and really discovered kind of a mutual love of reading and the, you know, the sort of things that we were reading were very, very similar. And yeah, we hit upon that idea of like, oh, wouldn't it be lovely to start up a bookshop? And then it got more and more serious. And like, wouldn't it? Couldn't it? Could we actually do this? And um, we spent a really, really long time, spent about two years uh, working at it behind the scenes, really honing the idea and the vision of what we wanted to look like, which has stood us in really good stead. So yeah, that was kind of the trajectory of it. Two years of deep thought and then six months of very fast action at the end. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Mad panic and I can't believe we're doing this and oh my God. And yeah, it was, it's been, yeah, it's been absolutely crazy since we got the keys to the property. But yeah, it's been brilliant. And tell me about this decision to sell only books by women or LGBTQ plus authors. How did you make that decision? 
Well, basically, we wanted to sell books that we wanted to read. But we also think that some of the best writing that's out there at the moment, I mean, if you look at like the Booker Prize long list, for example, is written by women and people from minoritized communities, LGBTQ authors. So that was kind of what we were reading a lot. We were very aware that a lot of mainstream bookshops, though they do a great job in in a lot of ways in in sort of putting forward a great selection of books it can often be hard if you are looking for books that represent your experience to find them in a bigger bookshop so we wanted to just have a space that was like purely dedicated to amplifying marginalized voices and we knew that everything in there would be absolutely amazing because that is where some of the most creative right brilliant writing is coming from also it really helps that we've got a really tiny shop which means that we have to be all killer no filler so we have to choose very carefully so it sounds like your thinking was i would shop at this bookshop a lot of people i think even though this whole episode is is about how this might not be the case a, a lot of people at the prospect of opening a bookshop would just think oh everybody just gets things so quickly and cheaply from amazon these days is it even possible but you had this certainty that well if if we would shop there then somebody else will if we build it they will come i think it's really generous of you to call it a certainty we were <laughs> we were very much like well we want to do this won't this be amazing and then spoke to a few people who were like that sounds really cool but mm, isn't it a bit niche but actually it turns out that there is a big demand and we weren't like on our own with this mm. and people have been really really thankful to have a space like ours and have been saying that they wanted a space like this in Sheffield for a really long time yeah I think for a long time it was exactly that right have we just created something that we would just like to see and uh, and it has felt uh, yeah a great sense of relief that actually <laughs> yeah we haven't just created an extension of our own living room yeah um, <laughs> I mean it kind of is so so Tell us about some of the challenges uh, you faced when actually setting up the bookshop. Well, it was a lockdown project. So we were sort of like, okay, we can't believe we're going to do this, but we are going to do this. And we started going to look at properties around Sheffield city centre. And then like the second massive lockdown happened and we were like, this is a really bad time to open a business. Okay, let's take a pause. Um, And then I think we kind of lost momentum for a while because it was just survival in the pandemic, really. Neither of us have backgrounds in business or book selling. And I think actually it has been, I feel anyway, an advantage for us because we have had no preconceptions about what it is we need to do. We've been quite gung-ho and I think (laughs) that has helped an awful lot. And our approach to challenging situations has made it more manageable. I think ongoing challenges are things like the cost of living crisis in the way that customers have talked to us about what they're buying and how they're buying the books that has been a bit of a challenge Um, but it has just required us to be a little bit more nimble and think about different ways that we can offer things to people so we do lots of events and we're hoping to start doing subscription bundles and things like that lots of book clubs and so on what's the most if this isn't a stupid question, what is the most pleasurable thing about being a bookseller? Oh, that's a hard question. Is it the people who you get coming in? It's all of it. I mean, genuinely, there's very, very little of it that I don't enjoy. I love the customers. I love working with Rosie. I love choosing the books. Um, you love making the shop pretty. <laughs> 
Yeah. The customers are a total joy, yes. though. Like, it's been such a wonderful thing to be slap bang in the middle of Sheffield City Centre, which, you know, is a place that has seen some hard times, if we're honest. And a lot of people say they don't really come into the town centre, but they do come in to see us. And it's so lovely. Mm. We've got really lovely regular customers. We've met so many brilliant, funny, interesting, creative people that told us all about all the great stuff that mm. they're doing. And it's made us really fall in love with the city again, I think, as well, because we, we feel so much... Much more, more connected. Yeah, much a much yeah, more central part of it really and, and it's it's just been it's just been quite like eye opening mm. how many brilliant people doing amazing things there are in Sheffield. Do you have Rosie customers and Sarah customers? Ooh <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I don't know. Um I th- yes. I think we do. Yes, I think probably we do. I think people come in and uh, if they want something by an Irish writer um, or nature or stuff. nature, I'm your woman. Um, Queer stuff is me, um, and historical fiction is me, and then we have a massive overlap yes. as well. But like, yeah, um, we definitely have like people that like make a beeline for either of us for recommendations. <laughs> it's a really nice thing to be able to offer that. So that seems to me like it's part of the key to taking on either online or even high street giants where you have people who really know what they're selling if you want this particular thing these are the people who will be able to tell you what the best of the best is yeah i mean i think that's the joy of independent bookshops isn't it and independent shops in general you go in and you know that the people there are gonna know their stock inside out and one of the best parts of the job for us is recommending things for people. We love the challenge whenever people come in. I had a customer in yesterday who was going on a long flight to Japan. He hates flying and wanted something deeply immersive so that they could ignore the fact they were on a plane. And, and really long. And really, really long. <laughs> so it's just wonderful and being able to help people. And I think this is what... This is part of what we can offer. Do you, do you not feel the weight of responsibility of a recommendation? I, I, I really get very anxious about recommending a book to somebody. Oh, no, I think we really love, like, nerding out, to be honest. And it's there's nothing, like, we're both, like, really incredibly nerdly enthusiastic about stuff. And I think sometimes customers can be like, all right, chill out, <laughs> when we're, like, really raving about a book. Particularly when it's books that you've loved. There is nothing nicer than sharing that joy with somebody else and knowing what they've got in store. Like, it's such a treat thinking that they haven't read, like, your favourite book and what they're about to embark on an experience is just really, really, really pleasing. So, so do you think part of what you've learned is the uh, importance of the role that bookshops can play within a community? Yeah, I think we always wanted it to not just really be a bookshop. It was kind of, we love books and we wanted to sell books, but it was kind of a bookshop as a proxy for a community space, wasn't mm. it? We wanted it to be a place that brings people together. We wanted it to sort of be a a way of starting interesting conversations. We wanted it to help people feel validated. We wanted people to meet each other while browsing different sections of the bookshop, you know, Mm. sort of flirting in the queer section. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's a nice space. We want people to feel safe. We've had like, you know, in a sort of less sort of joyful, but also important way, we've had trans non-binary teenagers coming in because they didn't, they don't feel understood and they don't know where to go or what to do and just coming and sitting and having a little cry in the corner just because they know that it's safe and we've given them lots of books to help them feel validated and affirmed 
and then they've gone off and like got on with their life and that is just such a wonderful mm. thing to be able to do for people and in the city more broadly I mean we're super lucky in Sheffield to have a couple of really great I mean we've got loads of really great second hand bookshops but we've also got a couple of really great independent bookshops we've got one in the city centre called Libiblioteca and we've got a children's focused one um, called Rhyme and Reason and it's been really really lovely to sort of complement what they do and we all, I think we all kind of work really well alongside each other and do you think your particular niche that you found sort of suggests that there might not just be a kind of upsurge in bookshops in general but also sort of more specialist bookshops as well yeah absolutely um i think i don't know if we'd actually if we just tried to be a sort of generalist bookshop i'm not sure it would have been that successful i think in terms of people feeling that it's their space at the fact that we have a very clear angle has been really helpful it's quite funny though because our angle is kind of we are an inclusive community bookshop but (laughs) some people go oh there's a great new lesbian bookshop open in town or oh there's a great new feminist bookshop opened in town Mm. and we are different things to different people which is people see what they want don't they yeah they really do which is so nice and i think there's definitely a revival in queer and feminist bookshops around the country well I think a lot of us at some stage have daydreamed about what it would be to to run a bookshop and and then you think I'm just romanticizing it but talking to the two of you I'm thinking maybe actually what you're describing is what we've been daydreaming about all along it sounds fantastic thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us Rosie May Sarah Scales from Juno Books in Sheffield thank you very much thank you pleasure it has been a joy Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Amy Fallone, who is Managing Director of children's publisher Knights Of and co-director of Roundtable Books, an inclusive bookshop in Brixton. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Nice to be here. You're a children's publisher. What what are your earliest memories yourself of of books and reading? Well, my mum loves to tell the story of me being such a voracious reader that when I was younger, she actually got these waterproof books that I could take to the beach and or the swimming pool. Not quite sure how true that is, but that is definitely her memory. I think one of my earliest memories would be being kind of deposited in what was then Ottaker's in Bromley um, whilst my mum did the Saturday shop and I would just have time in my life in there um the booksellers knew me really well and I'd often have like a stack of Jacqueline Wilson titles when she finished shopping that I was like please can I have all of these and she'd be like yeah you can get one because we're going to be back next week and and have nights of investigated waterproof books I mean, definitely something later down the line, I think. <laughs> well, tell us about the, the company. You started it, uh, I think, four or five years ago, back in uh, 2017. What's, what, was, what was the story behind it? Yeah, so we turned five, actually, last October. Um, and I yeah, always loved books, always loved reading, did English literature at uni, did a year abroad in Florida, actually, which is where I kind of discovered the career I wanted to get into. 
good because publishing, and I still maintain this, it's like a secret society that unless you know someone who knows how to get you in or know someone who's already in the industry, it's hard to, to kind of get into it. So when I came back, did my final year, and then managed to intern for a year after I graduated in about five places. Got my first permanent job a couple months after. But I guess kind of like the rose tinted glasses of having my first job in publishing quickly disappeared, I would say, because I noticed that I was at the time I was the only black person in editorial. I was the one of like three people of colour in the whole entire company. And more than that, the stories that I was working on, the stories that were being published were from a very homogenous set of people. And I grew bored of that. I was like, my friends aren't in here. I'm not in here. My family aren't in here. Accompanied with the microaggressions that I faced in the office and a little bit of institutional racism thrown in there just for good measure, I felt like it's either leave the industry or step out and take a chance and kind of do something that integrates what is probably known best as diversity and inclusion in a really authentic and intentional way. And Nights Of was born, I guess, for me out of a frustration that I wasn't seeing the books published that I wanted to see. And I wasn't working with peers from a wide range of backgrounds. And so the whole entire aim of Nights Of is to publish underrepresented voices and work with a diverse group of people, something that I don't think should be groundbreaking, but something that is definitely Unfortunately, not yet the norm. And, and what was the first book that you signed? What was the first author that you signed? And the first two books, I would say, that kind of happened around the same time was Nights and Bikes by Gabrielle Kent, which is about two girls riding bikes, fighting monsters that may or may not be um, real. They can see them, but, you know, family, parents, older people, adults can't. And then Jason Reynolds is For Everyone, which is definitely a passion buy from me. Um, it's a long form poem um, that he did at a commencement speech out in the States. Um, but I was such a huge fan of his writing that I was like, if I can just get this one thing, then maybe we can get the rest of his books as well. And lo and behold, we did. So yeah, those were our first two. So that, that's the story of the publishing company. T tell us the story behind the setting up of your shop, Roundtable Books, uh, in 2019. The bookshop was definitely a happy accident. Um, so we were celebrating, or about to celebrate our first birthday. And around that same time, the first Reflecting Realities report by CLP was published that showed that only at the time, um, only 1% of children's books featured a black, Asian minority ethnic protagonist. And we started as a company, a hashtag on Twitter, which was read the 1%, which was to focus on the 1% that did exist, uplift those authors and illustrators that had books, give them a bit of a boost and a spotlight. And we were like, well, we were going to throw a first birthday party anyway. So why not kind of like mush the two together? Then we'd been in Brixton for a couple of years. All right, let's just do it in Brixton. Um, so we rented a space um, on Cold Harbour Lane. And we were like, we'll do a little pop-up, we'll have a birthday party. Had no idea what we were doing, absolutely no idea. Um, book selling is not something that I knew about at all. But with the help of another independent bookshop, Tales on Moon Lane in Dulwich, they kind of were like, this is what you'll need, this is your card machine, so you should count cash, so you should keep an eye on your stock. And over five days, we managed to sell 500 books. Wow. And that was in the October. Yeah, it was it was a crazy period of time. We were really busy. We had a lot of 
emotional responses, I guess, that we weren't planning for or expecting either with like people just walking in the doors and having like teachers and parents being like, God, I wish I had these books in my school. I wish I had these books to teach from. I wish I had these growing up as well as kids who are very much just like, oh, great, that cover looks cool. Let me buy that. And so we did that for the five days. But what we heard overwhelmingly from the community of Brixton was that this bookshop was needed permanently, that like it shouldn't be a pop up. You're going to be here forever. And we took a week off and then did some like rogue questioning of the community to be like, I think we put a Twitter poll up and like an Instagram poll. and was like, would people put money behind this? And so two months later, in the two weeks up to running up to Christmas, we did a two-week pop-up with the aim of raising £30,000 and managed to raise £50,000. And then in May of the following year, um, after we hired a bookseller, we opened up in Brixton Village, Brixton Market. And we had a great seven months, I think. We had our first Christmas, which was incredible. Had a couple of authors in. It was just a really nice period of time. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and as a not even year old bookshop, that was that was a really difficult period of time for us. Tell us some more about that. Yeah, I think we we really thrive and we really are proud of the fact that being in-store and having in-store booksellers who really know every book on the shelf is what we really are proud of. And we can give recommendations based off of that human interaction. And obviously you lose all that with lockdown. But I think what I missed the most was the regulars, like the regular customers who you would see Kids who would come in after school, again, their parents just depositing them in there whilst they went and got their fruit and veg from the market. And I really missed those kids and I really missed the safe space that we had created for a lot of the community. But after every iteration of lockdown and getting through the pandemic, we've since moved locations still in the market, but in a more kind of centralised spot. We're right opposite the meat man and the fish man and the fruit and veg man, right at the entrance of Brixton Market. It's a smaller location, but we're on a nice corner. So we've got like a double window, which we get to do like beautiful illustrations for. And we had our best Christmas ever last year. So it has been, yeah, it has been, it's been a journey. And I think for any new indie bookshop opening up like a year before a pandemic was the wildest ride and the, you know, biggest test of strength for us and our team. And how do you find, you've obviously had a fantastic customer reaction, but what do you find when people Mm -hmm. come into your shop for the first time? Yeah, I think people are just really surprised at the range that we have in store. I think a lot of traditional retail spaces for books can tend to look a bit copy-paste samey in terms of what they're stocking, but we really do curate for the community that we're in. Um, The bookshop, like the publishing house, is a dedicated space for underrepresented authors and illustrators, and we're about 60% kids' books and 40% adults at the moment. I think often the narrative that we hear is that there just aren't enough authors or there just aren't enough books being published for and by people of colour or people from a neurodivergent background or disabled authors. And we really do the work to stock our shelves and to ram our shelves full of these books that do exist. And maybe all of them weren't published in the last two or three years, but there are still some incredible what we call backlist titles that exist um, that need light as well. And so I think a lot of people come in and they're just like, overwhelmed by the sheer amount that that does exist in a good way 
and and that instinct that you had from working in a traditional publishing company that mm. this this industry doesn't seem to have very many people who who look like me this this issue of representation that then mm. drove you to set up the publishing company and mm. the bookshop and has has proven so correct for you mm-hmm. is the wider publishing industry now catching up to that or could it be doing a better job? It can always be doing a better job. And I'm, I'm not going to paint a idealistic picture of like, oh, we've come so far. Yes, there have been improvements. And I think the most recent Reflecting Realities report that was published, they now do them yearly, which is great. Because at the time when I was coming up, there weren't any hard numbers to kind of back up what people were feeling. I think we have to structurally change how the industry looks. I think a lot of people who are in publishing have been in publishing for decades and decades and decades and haven't had to consider who is missing around the table. And I think the only real way to affect long-lasting change is to do away with temporary solutions and see how the opinions and the thoughts and the nature of what we're doing is influenced on the top and trickles down. Let's ask finally, what are some of your favourite books that you're selling right now and you'd recommend to our listeners? Favourite books? I can tell you I've got a huge to-be-read pile, um, which is very common for anyone, I think. Books I'm looking forward to reading are Small Worlds, which is published May 11th by Caleb Azuma Nelson. I'm reading a book called Windward Family by Alexis Keir. And then for a kid's book, I would say Mind and Me by Sunisa Chowdhury is a really lovely story of a little girl and her mind depicted as separate characters and a missing pet rabbit um, that they have to kind of all find together. So, yeah, a nice little mix there for anyone listening. And what's your favourite thing about running the bookshop? The people. I think, you know, being in Brixton, it's such a special, unique community, a community that is, you know, going through a lot, I think, in terms of gentrification and the changing landscape, but a community full of very, very strong, opinionated people, which I always love. I think when we first did the pop-up, we had a lot of them just coming through the doors being like, who are you and why why are you here? And I love that. They're very protective of their space and they want to know your intentions, which is absolutely correct and true. But yeah, I just I just love all the people that you get to meet. I love all the very unique events that we get to run as well, which are really intentional and specialised for the author and the content. There's nothing better than being in the community of Brixton and, and speaking to those people day in, day out. Well, look, Amy Fallone, it's been fantastic to talk to you. People should go and uh, visit Roundtable Books. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's great to do what feels like a sort of unalloyed good news story, doesn't it? I know. I just love a bookshop. And it's so encouraging to hear that they are in such rude health, despite predictions. Exactly. A few years ago. But I think it's about the sort of sense of belonging and being with other people. I know I'm not saying people are going to the bookshops for the people, but do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And I, I, th- I think that's one of those odd by effects of the pandemic that people have more time to read often but then craved that physical connection with the bookshop and the the books and the the people who can recommend them i also thought in this episode so much of it really was about booksellers and, and people being better at 
identifying what the public wants than perhaps an old-fashioned publishing industry. Do you mean like through TikTok, for example? So, so I mean through TikTok. I mean when we're talking to Amy, how her experiences of not seeing herself represented in the industry or in books led to her identifying this need. Yeah. And the same to, to some extent with Rosie and Sarah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems to have come from people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually. And let's be honest, an e-reader is fine, but it's not the same as reading a book. It doesn't no. feel the same as reading a book. No. You know, if you're away on holiday and you want to take lots of books with you, it's quite convenient. But if I'm at home, I'd much rather be reading like a proper book than an e-reader. Absolutely. And also maybe there's something in that about how quick we are to think that an industry is going to vanish yeah. when in actual fact there there is an attachment to some of these physical media and, and, and so on. You ever been part of a book club? No. Do you want to start one? Mm, cheerful book club. Can we do something other than heavyweight tomes on economics? Bit of Richard Osman. He's largely responsible for the resurgence of the publishing industry. Yeah, he's done uh, very well. Anyway, doing that whole episode makes me want to go into a bookshop sort of now, you know what I mean? You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on this week's episode um, on bookshops, we'd love to hear from you. If you've got a favourite bookshop, we'd love to know. Maybe we'll even come and visit. Maybe you run a bookshop or you visit the bookshop. Uh, you can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. Paint a picture, metaphorically or literally, of that bookshop, or if you've got ideas for future shows, or if you just want to say thank you to me and Jeff, um, well, you know, and we'd obviously like to thank you too. Anyway, you get the general message. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, this comes from Sam Taylor Hill, uh, and it reads as follows. Dear Ed and Jeff, hope you're well. For the past four years, I've been working on a PhD thesis titled Building a Community of Equals, Challenging Alienation in the British Working Class. Go Big has been an inspiration for the thesis. I'm not sure I should be reading this, Jeff. This is a bit too, like, self-aggrandizing. Go Big's still available in all good bookshops, by the way. Thank you. You might have to rummage around a bit. Which seeks to diagnose the issues faced by the British working class as consistent with alienation, but then offers a progressive vision for the future, which cuts across a number of cultural, economic and social problems uh, to offer a, a response to a worrying populist nationalism in our society. My thesis has been recommended for a past. I wanted to email in both say thank you for the inspiration to include practical ideas, how this vision might be implemented, as well as ask if you might be interested in reading it, as I feel it ties in with a lot that you cover on the podcast. I would love to have a copy of it, Sam. Uh, and I'm, well, I'm really flattered. It's not a lovely thing. Yeah, it is a lovely thing. And I just want to say the calibre of our listeners, because the second email also is um, PhD themed in part. Oh, well. This comes from Jacob Hamilton, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. This is the second time I've emailed you. The first was before COVID, where Ed was very excited that I was doing my PhD in Norwich. Norwich! Quiz of the week. Yeah. I think we then got into a long-winded thing about how no young person would understand us, our references to Anglia TV and Sale of the Century. Oh, uh, yeah. God, you've got a good memory. Yeah. Well, I could just feel us about to do it again, so I thought right. I'd had it yeah. off at the pass. Yeah. Um, that was all the way back in episode 125. Well, wow. now I've finished that PhD with the help of your podcast, which Aww. I've listened to throughout. It says, on the last episode, I heard Jeff complaining about vegan cheese being awful. Well, she was complaining about my vegan cheese maker, which she never used. But anyway, yes. But anyway, let's, move, let's move on. Yeah. Let's not, not, not dwell yeah. on that. Let's offline that. Um, yeah. 
I agree that the stuff you find in supermarkets is bad, but there is good vegan cheese in the world. La Fomagerie, just wow. off Brick Lane, London, is a proper cheesemonger. Wow. But it's fully vegan. I have to look this up. I've, I've walked past it. It does look amazing, actually. Uh, they have delicious blue cheese, cheddar, smoked feta, anything amazing. you can think of, really. I would suggest you check it out if you want some nice vegan cheese. Well, I'm really glad of that and recommendation. Maybe that could also fit in with my, like, Toasty Maker. Yes. It's all coming together. Because as I say, I've walked past it a few times. And because it's one of those little shops, I didn't want to go in, taste the cheese and then risk not liking it and then having to perform how good it was and then feel obliged to buy it. It's amazing how you can sort of think about the social awkwardness in advance. You know, it's like... You, you're, you're three steps ahead. It's, it's, yeah, it's a gift. It's most of what I'm doing. I'm either feeling terrible anxiety remembering some social <laughs> awkward thing that happened to me or feeling terrible anxiety imagining what's about to happen to me. Yeah, well, um, that's, that is what anxiety is like. But, but Jacob is, has removed that for me by endorsing this. And he says, I agree, it's usually awful. So I, I know we're sort of on the same page. So thank you for that, Jacob. Now, the next email is really important. It comes from Joe Bozunolari. Uh, and Joe, I hope I pronounced your surname uh, correctly. Uh, and its subject is Responsible Rebuilding of Earthquake-Struck Turkish Cities. Dear Jeff and Ed, thank you so much for your informative and thought-provoking podcast. I always look forward to your thankfully unchanged, sorry, Jeff, instantly recognisable and uplifting theme tune. I'm an expat living in Izmir, Western Turkey. Like the majority of us here, I'm still in shock following the earthquakes that hit such a huge area of the southwest of the country. The reason I'm contacting you uh, is I can see no evidence of anyone considering the future impact on the environment of the extensive rebuilding required. The traditional method of building here is heavily concrete dependent. The carbon footprint of clearing the devastated cities and throwing up buildings will be significant, potentially catastrophic. Ed, do you know of any organisations or individuals who will be able to advise the Turkish government on more sustainable and financially achievable construction on such a massive scale? It seems to me that it could be an incredible opportunity to build cities of the future, offering sustainable, well-insulated, of course, earthquake-proof urban areas from scratch that could become models for other developing countries. I appreciate the time, lack of resources and taking current land ownership into consideration makes this seem naive and unrealistic, but I'd be very keen to know if anyone else has ever considered this. As we face more urban destruction as a result of a myriad of natural causes, many of which are a direct result of climate change, we need to be considering plans for environmentally responsible reconstruction of entire cities. And you know, what's so interesting about this is that when we, I was in Germany recently, I met this guy, John Schellenhuber, who's a founder of the Potsdam Institute, and he has this whole project. I think it's called Bauhaus Europe. Yes, um, I remember you saying. Which is about, you know, the, 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 the potential for timber construction. So maybe I should put Joe in touch with um, him. Uh, Joe, if you look, look up John Schellenhuber's organisation, maybe there's a way... Uh, that he can help. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. As well as uh, having gone to Cardiff, I also went to Stockport this week. When was the last time you were in Stockport? Can't remember, a long time ago. Anyway, what, why? It's having a bit of a renaissance. Uh, do you want to know what the unofficial slogan of Stockport is? No, and you can, yes. you can you, <laughs> and you can buy this on tote bags, t-shirts, posters, yeah. probably mugs. The slogan is "Stockport isn't shit." Is that right? Yes. 
<laughs> what brought? What took you to Stockport? It was my best friend uh, Chris's fiftieth birthday. Which I always feel a bit babyish using the phrase "best friend," and I worry about one of my other friends hearing it and thinking. But I thought I was best. But let me tell you, it's it's, it's in flux. It's like the the pop charts. It changes week to week. Do you have a best friend? Obviously, you. Um, no, uh, you, you keep me at arm's length. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, did you have a fun raucous time? We, well, we just met in the afternoon and wandered around the old haunts. And it, it's great. There's loads of little cafes and shops and restaurants open that are hip and arty. But it's it's side by side with the stuff that's been there forever. So, you know, if you go to one of the street food markets in London, it's kind of gentrified. You don't see the same people at that as you would in the local branch of Poundland. Yeah. Um, they, they're doing something right in Stockport where the, the food trucks sit alongside the stalls where the pensioners are doing their grocery shopping and buying mugs of tea. That's fantastic. Really, really lovely. It was great to go there. One thing I wanted to mention is you said to me to make... You encouraged me to make the paneer kebabs. Do you remember this? This is from Mira Soda's yes. cookbook, and it's the mango chutney kebabs, which and I've made. Before. I made them, and they were a roaring success. Fantastic! I made some dal. That didn't go so well. I'm sorry. It just was too thick. Mm. Sludgy, but but you, you never want to hear something you've cooked described as sludgy, do you? It wasn't described as sludgy well, by. This is delicious. It's quite sludgy. No, it was, it was just like my blushes weren't spared on the doll. You don't have a verbatim quote from Justine, do you? No, it wasn't. It wasn't condemned as edible, uh, <laughs> but it, it was definitely like net net. It was like big success. Congratulations! So thank you for the thank you for pushing me in that direction. Okay, we'll have to. Uh, uh, we we should get our listeners to. Send him recipes. You pick one and then say how it went. Definitely, that's a good idea. There you go. Maybe it'll be as successful as the theme tune <laughs> competition. Come on, that that bore some fruit today with the remix blowing in the wind. Yeah. Honestly, there's no bad ideas on this podcast. No. Right. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? We should. Thanks to Sean Bailey, Sarah Scales, Rosie May and Amy Falone. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been blowing... In the... Wind. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> 